Hey, you're listening to Dear Seekers, a bi-weekly podcast featuring intriguing, interesting, and inspiring women in the fashion, art, and design space in Canada. This is our 23rd episode, and is also the last of 2018. I'm going to take a break for the holiday, give myself some time to collect my thoughts, and simply just get some fresh air. We don't have a date set for 2019's first episode yet, so make sure to sign up to our newsletter on dearseekers.com, so you will be informed when we back with more. Before introducing today's guest, I'd like to thank two people. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. One is my dear friend Vayu, who is the photographer behind all the amazing photos taken from our home visits. And second is my fiance Stephen. He built Dear Seekers website and helped to make my vision come to life. And also, I'd like to thank all of you who have been so generous with your compliments. You know, on the days when I have to come home to add an episode after a long day of work, on the weekends when I rather go to an antique market than being stuck in my closet to record a voiceover, your comments were the ones that kept me going. Knowing that someone on the receiving end is enjoying my conversations with these women I admire is super rewarding and encouraging. So, thank you very much. Writing is not going to make any money. You're not going to be a writer. That was Tracy Wan, describing how her traditional Chinese parents rejected writing for her when she was about to choose her university major. Oh wow! We did not know that you could succeed, and here you are making money and being fine. <laughs> She's doing more than just fine. Been working at renowned advertising agencies and copywriting for big major clients. Tracy has proved to her parents and to herself, writing as a profession is not only possible, but also is Tracy's true calling. But getting to this point isn't easy. During our conversation, Tracy revisits some dark moments from her childhood, about using writing as a way to cope with her reality. Besides writing, Tracy has an innate talent for sense. She started an online space called Invisible Stories, where she explores the world of scent through her own writing and through conversations with other perfume connoisseurs and perfume makers who took unconventional paths. To become a perfumer, in order to make perfume accessible, which is 100% something that I wanted to do with this project, you have to show the more democratic ways of becoming a perfumer. I think perfumers themselves would say that like females are extremely underrepresented in the perfume industry, especially people of color. Like I don't know if anyone can name a person of color perfumer. Tracy hopes to encourage us to rethink about perfume, scent, and perfume makers. And to debunk some of the myths about perfume making, to know her is to love her. Tracy is tackling, well, quite frankly, a quite pretentious topic, but herself is anything but that. 
Okay, I'm so excited. Yay. Because you prepared your questions? Yeah, I have so many questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah. I'm so excited about this conversation. So now let's talk about writing. Because mm-hmm. I didn't know this before till we were doing photo shoot and you shared this with me. That the reason you got into writing was because you find out a lot of people have feelings or thoughts, but having difficulty or don't usually find a way to articulate that or translate that from mm-hmm. what they're thinking or feeling to words. So tell me more about how did you get into writing? My parents were really strict when I was growing up. So anytime that I would misbehave, they would lock me in a room in my basement for a few hours to like sort of punish me or like make me realize the error of my ways. So starting when I was like nine or 10, I would spend like three, four or five hours in this room in the basement sometimes. And to pass the time, I would have to find something to do. And so it so happened that in that basement were lots of paper and pens and stuff. So I really just got into writing down how I was feeling. Like I was obviously very angry and aggravated at the time, but I would spend like most of my time in there writing. And what I noticed was that there was nothing else that made me feel like the time passed as quickly as through writing. Like I just went into a vortex and came out of it. And for like four or five hours had gone by and my parents would come back and get me and like, you know, teach me a lesson or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. So starting from that time, I felt like there was something really magical about the process of writing that really took me away from sort of the ennui of like existence almost. (laughs) Like it was just, I think they call it flow in uh, the creative world. It's this like, thought process and like way of thinking that you get into where you're like so involved in the thing that you're doing that you're not aware of time at all Mm. so yeah ever since then i'd sort of held on and valued this feeling that i got from writing where i could forget the world around me and really immerse myself in doing this one thing and that's when i decided to become a writer was like the pursuit of that feeling i really enjoyed Mm-hmm. So that's how I started getting into writing. And then the stuff that you mentioned was absolutely true. What I love about writing is when I can articulate something to myself for the first mm-hmm. time. I really write to figure out what I'm thinking. Like unless I write things out and process through them, I'm not exactly sure of what my thoughts are. But in the process of writing, they come into fruition almost. And then what I love about that part is once I've articulated it to myself and I publish it, it's almost like I'm articulating it for the first time in a lot of other people's brains too. And they'll read something like that and be like, oh yeah, I never thought about it that way, but that's exactly the feeling that I had. Or like you put into words something that I was struggling to find the words for. And I find that feeling really satisfying and like really powerful. And I really feel like that's the best way that I can connect with people. Mm. thank you so much for sharing i didn't know that was the origin story of how writing came about yeah i feel it's almost kind of like sad but something also like a silver lining come out of this experience you had did you ever feel like anger towards writing because of this was what happened or this was what coming out of this experience you had no i i didn't really have any negative feelings towards writing because it felt like a almost like a rescue from my reality like Mm. it was 
saving me from having to spend hours doing nothing. So I felt very grateful to the process of being immersed in something and being able to like forget everything around me. Because otherwise I would have spent a lot of time stewing in my own anger, like trying to get back at my parents. But I didn't really feel like in those times I was doing any like real wrong. So I didn't feel like sorry or apologetic. I just needed to spend that time in the closet. <laughs> so I was really happy that it was writing to do it. Mm. Do you still keep those copies of the writing oh, no. you had? No, no, no. <laughs> do you remember what you were writing about? Um, Not really. I mean... I was a pretty dark kid. Some things I wrote, I really am not proud of now. And like, I think if I were a parent who had found these things, I would have been really alarmed. But it was really more of my imagination and not so much like reality. Like I once made a list of like the most dramatic suicide methods. Wow. Um, yeah, but that's like... That's like more like a persona or like a fiction you created yeah, in your own Yeah, it was world. more just like my brain exploring like real weird worlds versus like me feeling extremely suicidal at the time. But I don't think I have any sort of negative feelings towards writing itself. I did write some Harry Potter fan fiction during that time too. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> fan fiction's funny because you have this world already set up for you and basically... It's like up to your imagination just to continue it versus like doing all the foundational work mm -hmm. of like setting up a plot and like developing all these characters. You already are borrowing from pre-established characters and universes. So it's a lot easier to just yeah. take it one step further or like dream up another scenario that would make mm -hmm. sense. Um, because it already had the, the dream world foundation there for you. Would that kind of limit it? The dream you have? Because almost like a, there is a, a framework for you already. Mm -hmm. So your dream not necessarily can be limitless. Yeah, but I, I kind of like that. I like mm -hmm. restrictions and creativity. I think if the, like the sandbox is the entire world, I got really caught up in like, is this the right thing? Like, am I sure this is where I want to go? Whereas if there are like limits to what I can do, then it's a lot more fun for me to play within those limits. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Because a lot of creatives people I know uh, are actually hate framework and hate restrictions because yeah. they want it to be endless. They want it to be everything is possible. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting to hear your point of view is that you like to have a framework. You like to have a rule, quote unquote, so you can create a world inside of that. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. And you can also, if you have a rule, you can figure out ways to break it that are interesting too. Mm. Versus, I don't know, I think it also comes from like not exactly being sure of my creations at that time where it's like, like, is this any good? If it's just anything is possible, it almost feels overwhelming, like everything is possible and therefore I must explore everything. Whereas if you start from a certain foundation or framework, I don't know, I just find it a lot more playful to mm. like extend that further or like challenge how these characters were originally defined or like make them do weird things that seem out of character, but also in character. Anyways, all of this happened when I was 13. So I have a very vague memory of what I actually did with this Harry Potter fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have those copies left. No, I don't know why. I like to get rid of stuff, like purge stuff once in a while. Like recently, I went to get my battery replaced for my iPhone. And the girl who was there was like, oh, did you back up this phone? And I was like, no. And she's like, oh, don't you want to back it up in case you lose all your photos? And I'm like, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Like it doesn't bother me. I kind of like this idea of starting over all the time. Mm. 
Writing was sort of in my life for a long time, but not something that was actively present until I would say my mid 20s. Like before that, when I was applying to university, I had to get my parents permission to basically sign the university application papers because I was still underage at that time. And my parents being really strict Chinese parents were like, you have five career options. Like you can pick one of the five. And if you're not one of those five, then we won't like help you go to school. What were the five? So the five were- I think I can probably guess. You can probably guess. Yeah. So doctor, obviously, lawyer, pharmacist, engineer, or architect. Oh, architect. I know. <laughs> Very accommodating of them. I think they were like, we're going to throw in one that slightly pander to your creative side. Um, so so they, did, they did see the creative side in you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, they knew I was creative. Mm-hmm. They knew I wanted to be a writer. They were just like, writing is not going to make any money. You're not going to be a writer. So yeah, they made me choose one of the five and I chose architecture and applied to architecture school and went to McGill School of Architecture. Oh, I didn't know you went to architecture school. Yeah, but I quickly realized that it was not for me. Like, while I do love architecture and architectural theory, I have no spatial intelligence. (laughs) Which is really important for architecture. It's extremely important. I just like thinking about architecture. I didn't actually want to be an architect. So um, my first semester, I was really miserable and I cried all the time and... I just decided to drop out of architecture school. And instead, I basically I had to finish up a year of architecture school. And then I switched over to a program at McGill that was under English, but it was called cultural studies. And what that was, was a mix of like film criticism, cultural criticism, and poetry. Three things that I really liked. So I did my degree in that. But let's pause here for a second. Sure. So from architecture school to that, sounds like a stretch for your parents' tolerance. Were they okay with it? Oh my god, no. No. How did you tell? even break that news to them that this is what you're going to do? I didn't break the news to them as much as they found out. Mm. I mean, they knew I was miserable. I didn't call them back for months. And then at one point, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I've already dropped out. And (laughs) they took it very poorly. That, uh, when was it? It was like one time after I'd announced the news and I went back home and I was doing the most like asinine of things. I was peeling like a, a, a pomelo and you know how they have like really thick skins. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I was struggling and I like peeled it halfway and I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And my mom was like, well, yeah, we already know that you're a quitter. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, they took it poorly. <laughs> also because half of my family is like architects and engineers and the other half are academics so they really expected me to like pursue one of those two routes and I just didn't and to this day I think they feel surprised that I'm able to like make a living and provide for myself which is so funny it's so funny <laughs> but yeah they're constantly like oh wow we did not know that you could succeed and here you are making money and being fine <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah so now you're in school studying something that's not architecture. Mm-hmm. Obviously, all the things you mentioned, like a poetry, film critique, uh, also all sounds interesting. Did you finally realize, yeah, this is me. This is exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah, I was extremely happy during that time because especially juxtaposed against like 
a semester of crying every day because I knew I was in the wrong place. It, it felt like freedom. It felt like exactly what I wanted to do and the way that my brain liked to think and the kind of work that I like to produce. So I was really happy until I graduated and realized that there was like no jobs for people who want to be poets but don't want to be like teaching poetry at a university, you know? Yep, most writers and poets will have to supplement their writings with something else on the side to sustain that passion. And this reality gives Tracy's parents an opportunity to say to her, oh well, told you so. They were like, what are you going to do? Like, how are you going to survive? And at the time, I was like working part time at a hotel. The good thing about living in Montreal, though, is that super cheap to be there. So I didn't need to make a lot of money to be able to provide for myself and have financial independence. So I did that for a while. I like at some point got a job editing online school material like it was a school that did online courses about like video games and fashion and all these things and basically i had to take video game and fashion <laughs> that sounds like a nice interesting combination <laughs> i mean like my boyfriend fun. and i yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it, it, they really had a range of courses that you could take but I was basically responsible for taking the course material that the professors would provide and editing it down so that it sounded like it came from a human being and not just like an academic who knew how to write about that one specific topic. So I did that for a while. It paid very little money, but I was able to get by. And then I met a friend who was in cultural studies with me who um, was interning at an ad agency. And he was like, oh, I think you would actually really like advertising. It's like probably one of the most lucrative ways to be a creative and make money. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll try that. And I like, you know, stalk some people online and email them and ask them to meet up for coffee and tell me about their jobs. And I think I was really lucky. And then the people who met with me were really nice and honest about the work that they were doing. And it really made me want to work in advertising like they did because they seem like nice people who were doing great work. So I decided to move to Toronto and do an advertising diploma which would allow me to build a portfolio of work and then apply to ad agencies, which is what I did. Mm. And that's how I ended up here. Here, Tracy means being a copywriter at creative agencies. Being a creative, getting paid to do what you love, sometimes comes with a downfall. That is, you have to trade in your vision with your client's vision. It's a common struggle that many of my creative friends experience. So they would choose a side project to express their own creative concept. Well, here I am with Dear Seekers. So I asked Tracy if this is what led to the birth of Invisible Stories. I mean, yes and no. I'm comfortable writing for other people and not expressing myself through that medium necessarily. Like I'm happy to exchange my services for a paycheck and not like be precious that like, oh, my creative vision isn't coming through. It's Why are you laughing a- when you're talking about that? Huh? Just because like, I think some people are. Some people are like, oh, like, why be creative if you're not going to be creative for yourself? And to me, it's like not an issue. I like solving problems. I like using what I'm good at to solve problems for other people. I don't necessarily need to express myself as a person all the time. But I did notice after a while that I had lost sort of the muscle of writing long form and 
not being able to create for myself was a little bit taxing in that like I did need another outlet for creative expression. So I started like freelancing and writing sort of pieces and essays and features for like other blogs and publications and things like that. So I did that on the side to help sort of balance the work that I was doing during the day. And then Invisible Stories really came out of a desire to really make my obsession with scent take form. I needed to put it into something in order to understand it. So I basically built this project to document the things I was learning and the relationships that I was making with perfumers and use it as a way to facilitate conversation with other people. Like I'm super curious about people's rituals and their relationship to scent. And I really wanted a formal way of setting that up. So it's not just me like, hey, like, how do you feel about smells? You know, like giving it a name and making it a project was an easier way of doing that. Mm -hmm. And it also makes me a little bit more accountable for pursuing this passion. This passion started very early in Tracy's life. There were two significant moments help her realizing the sensibility of hers. When I was 13, my house mm-hmm. got robbed. My family and I went on a vacation to Prince Edward Island. And when we came back, our house had been robbed and the robbers had left the doors open. And what I felt at that moment wasn't like, oh, they stole my computer or anything. It was more like, oh, wait, the scent of my house is gone because mm. they had left Like the fresh air had been through the house for like days, I think, before we came back. So like the smell of my parents cooking and sort of that like oil that hangs in the air in Chinese kitchens Mm -hmm. a lot, that was gone and it just smelled like fresh. And that was almost weird and alienating for me because I was like, where's that scent of home that I'm so used to? And that felt really gutting, actually. I was really upset by that. So that was the first memory I had of like the absence of a scent directly affecting me emotionally. And then the second one was when I went to college, I bought this perfume called Burberry Brit. And during that time I was living with my best friends in an apartment and it was in Montreal and it was always really cold. Mm -hmm. And I wore Burberry Brit a lot to feel at home and like cozy because Burberry Brit's really lovely and warm and like smells like almonds and all these nice things. And... I've always intimately associated that perfume with like the feeling of feeling at home and like I belonged with a group of people that I loved in a place that like felt, yeah, like home, even though it was just an apartment. The two events definitely marked significance for Tracy. She will have conversations with her friends about scents, go to online forums to know more, and do research on the side to feed her own curiosity. But she didn't find an outlet to document all these till 2017, when she finally decided to create Invisible Stories. One of the really good things about working in advertising is that you're encouraged to pursue your passion projects and just like make things. They don't have to be good. You should just be constantly making stuff. That's sort of like a a culture that many of my agencies and bosses promoted. And so when I was thinking about how to give 
my passion for scent like a form i was like why don't i just put it somewhere and like make a thing around it so that it's not just like hours of me doing all this research and absorbing this knowledge and it's not going anywhere and i'm not sharing it with anybody and it felt really like i was doing things in a vacuum and kind of for waste Hmm. so i thought if i you know started a blog or a website and started to document all of this content, then one, it would be like evidence that I was doing something. And two, it would help me like formalize it in my brain. Does that make sense? Yeah. And exactly like how you shared earlier is like sometimes with writing, you actually, that's the way you processing your thoughts and your Mm -hmm. feelings. So in this way, you tied up two of your passion. One is writing, one is sent together, which makes totally sense. Yeah. yeah, and to go back to what we were talking about before, too, about, like, my desire to, like, connect with people and really make them sort of come to their own conclusions about feelings that they hadn't previously articulated before, something I wanted to do with this project was challenge people to think about scent in a different way, where it's not just a stinky trip to the department store, and it's a lot more powerful and emotional and evocative than that. So mm-hmm. I wanted to put it into the world so that scent can have a really strong role in your life. And it's not just like a gift you get at Christmas, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Fragrance has always been positioned as the aspirational thing to acquire, you know? It's like if you put it on, you're going to become an object of desire for somebody else. Mm. You're going to feel more elegant and more rich. And, you know, like it's always been positioned as a thing that's going to help you be better than yourself. Mm. first you have to pay for it you know and it's Mm -hmm. like not cheap to pay for perfume yeah and it's just the circle of advertising and marketing around perfume that's really like cemented it as like a luxury product because look at the advertising for something like chanel it's like by design supposed to make you feel like you're not good enough and you need to be that person the only way that you can be that person is through the acquisition of this perfume Mm. Which is so silly. (laughs) And in many advertising, actually, it's promoting this uh, woman put on this perfume and become a desire for the men. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's almost become a totally embodies this whole of male gaze Mm -hmm. through scent. And then, do you think this notion of uh, back to like perfume makers, the female perfume makers are less legitimate than their counterparts of um, male perfume makers? I don't even know if people know that there are female perfume makers. I think like mm. the only people who are, first of all, I don't think most people think about who makes their perfume. Mm. Secondly, I think if you do know anything about perfumers, you know, like a handful of male French perfumers who are like in their 40s and 50s. And that's sort of very much a monopoly in the world of perfume in that it's always been an, a white male traditionally French way of life. Like it's a profession reserved for that small group of people. And I think perfumers themselves would say that like females are extremely underrepresented in the perfume industry, especially people of color. Like, I don't know if anyone can name a person of color perfumer Mm. unless you know the world of perfume, you know? Yeah, that's really true. In order to make perfume accessible, which is 100% something that I wanted to do with this project, you have to show the more democratic ways of becoming a perfumer. Because, like, traditionally, you become a perfumer by going to one of the few, like, handful of prestigious 
perfume schools, which are almost all in France. People who go there are traditionally, again, white, male, French. (laughs) And because it's not something that everybody can afford. Like if you're someone who grows up in like India, for example, you don't know that there's a perfume school that you can go to and become a perfumer. It's like not even an option for you. Whereas in France, there's such a history and culture of perfume and perfumers that it makes more sense for people to be like, oh, yeah, I knew of someone who did that. Maybe I can do that, too. So I wanted through the new noses to expose like this other side of perfume making, which is, yeah, like one, you don't have to be like a certified, trained, professional perfumer to make great perfume. I want to debunk that myth entirely because... As you smelled some of the stuff that some of the perfumers that I featured on the blog, like they're extremely capable, beautiful, creative souls who are able to make like incredible fragrances. And like some of them are just doing it in their like apartments part time, you know, while they're doing something else. And I just wanted to shed a light on the fact that you don't have to be following this very traditional path to reach equally desirable results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what other things have you learned by interviewing these people and not just the perfumers, also some people who like scent and fragrance. You interview some people who are genuinely have this kind of interest. What kind of things have you learned from all these interviews with people that kind of really opened up the horizon for you? Um, One of the things that I learned talking to people about just people who love perfume is that it goes way deeper than we think it does. Mm. like people sent memories once you start getting them like once you start getting them to talk about them go so deep into their psyches and their memories and their relationship with their parents and like all of this stuff bubbles up to the surface when you start talking about like scent associations and olfactive memories which i find really beautiful i love when i um, am talking to someone about something and they're remembering like a scent for the first time and like what that made them feel and there's this almost this like innocence that comes on their face when they're thinking about it and i find that really really striking and moving to be able to witness that you know someone like recalling something for the first time i also notice that people struggle a lot to talk about smells which we've talked about before, but it's something that, you know, as a word person, I'm extremely interested in is this inability to put into words this feeling that can be so strong inside of us that like, we're like, oh, if only I could like find the words for this, because I know exactly what I want to say, but I don't know how to say it. I found that came up a lot with quote unquote, regular people, people who aren't making fragrances. And then with fragrance people, obviously, there's a lot more comfort in talking about scent, because we have a lot more vocabulary at our disposal, just from studying you know how perfume is made and like sort of the words around a note or a certain composition like we know from just like absorbing all of this knowledge like ways to talk about it Mm -hmm. so I've noticed that and then with perfumers too what I find really interesting is that everyone has a different process You think it starts from the same place or has a sort of formulaic nature to it, but it doesn't at all. It's like sometimes they like think of a picture and they're like, how can I translate this picture into Mm. a scent? Really? Or someone will have a feeling and they're like, oh, I want to feel a certain way. Let me find perfumes that would make me feel that way. Mm. Or sometimes um, they'll have words, just a couple of words that come into their brain and they're like, oh, let me make a perfume around this idea. So it really depends on the creator. And even like the same creator will tell you every time they sit down to make a perfume, it's a different process. So I find that super compelling wow. and intriguing. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah. It's like they find out whatever inspired them. Everybody has their own kind of inspiration draw from like different mediums. Could be like as you say, a painting, or it could be a sound, could be a, a vision, could、mm-hmm. be a memory or something. Why do you think scent has such a strong ties to our memories, yet we don't even talk about it on a daily basis? We kind of neglect this this sense from, you know, vision, from our sound, from our hearing, from our taste. Those are talked about all the time, but scent, smelling, are not necessarily part of the conversation. Yeah, I'm not really sure why scent has been sort of demoted to the like least important sense. It feels like because. Food culture is as strong as ever, and yet、mm-hmm. people talk about taste. But like ninety percent of your taste is actually smell. Oh, really? You know how when you get a cold and you can't、yeah. smell anymore, like、yeah. eating becomes a lot less interesting because、mm. you're like,、mm, yeah, like it tastes like whatever. Right. That's because most of your like ability to smell is gone, and with it, your ability to taste. But people love food. People love talking about food, writing about food, and yet no one is talking about the smells that they get from the food,、mm-hmm. which is so odd to me. And I don't really have a strong theory as to why, except that the world that we live in is constantly bombarded with visual and auditory stimulus that just ends up taking up all of our attention.、Mm. Like we've been almost conditioned to function as visual and auditory creatures first, with the internet especially. And I think also part of that is that scent is really hard to communicate.、Mm. Like if I make a painting, I can take a photo of the painting and send it to you, and you'll have seen the painting. But if I make a smell, unless you're here with me, there's no way for me to communicate that smell to you. Right. Right. So I think just the ability to communicate things across distances has also impaired our ability to smell and think about it because we're so used to seeing things on a screen and hearing things, but we're not used to like receiving new smells.、Mm-hmm. Unless it's like, yeah, you open your fridge and it smells like kimchi, then it's like, <laughs> that's a problem, <laughs> and then that's when our sense of smell comes in, right? Yeah. There's also this idea that like. Scent is the most reptilian sense. Right. We've been raised to think that like new scents are a threat, right? If you pick up a, really, yeah. Tell me more. It's like、um, if you, for example, walk into your home and there's this like foreign smell. You're like, oh, what is that?、Mm. Right. Right. And the minute that you get used to it. It goes away. That's why people get like, "Oh, why do I like stop smelling this thing?"、Mm. It's because like it's no longer part of your primal system to be like, "Oh, like should, do I need to pay attention to this? Is scent something that's gonna harm me, or like, is it you know the intrusion of a new object or、mm. animal who's gonna like come and attack me?" So it's like, more like an instant kind of thing. Yeah, it's、Would、like super primitive. I think.、Mm. I、Enough. think we've been trained to only pick up on unfamiliar scents. Like if you smell an apple and it smells normal, you're just you're not gonna think about the smell of the apple. But if you smell the apple and it smells rotten, then you're like, oh, my apple smells rotten. Just by hearing Tracy, you most likely have noticed she has so much knowledge on scents and perfume. Although she probably would tell you she doesn't know enough, but just because of her humbleness. This curiosity and desire, Tracy has constantly been finding opportunities to expand her knowledge. Just this year, she went to France to study perfume and perfume making. She has taken writing about perfume 
to the next level. So I discovered this course at the Grass Institute of Perfumery、um, when I was doing research on whether I wanted to be a perfumer full time. So as I said earlier,、uh, there's only a handful of institutions in the world that train certified perfumers, and the Grass Institute of Perfumery is one of them. So I was looking into their offerings, being like, is this something that I want to do? And maybe it is, but it's also something that I can't afford to do because in order to be certified, you have to move to Grass and live there for a year and attend、oh, school full time.、Wow. And school is expensive, and living in France is expensive. And I just I, I don't have that kind of money. So I was thinking in the interim, what can I do to help develop my nose and my ability to smell and create smells a little bit more? And thankfully, the GIP offers a whole bunch of like short introductory workshops for people who are sort of halfway between your average person and a perfumer. Perfumer, so it's for like the sort of enthusiasts and the people who are just like excited about smells and wanting to know more about how to make them, but don't want to work as a perfumer for the rest of their lives. So they offer these two-week courses that happen like from May to October every year. It's two weeks, and you learn sort of the introduction to creating perfume and how all, that all works. So that's what I went there for.、And、basically, you attend school nine to five, Monday to Friday. You spend most of your morning smelling things because I think one of the hardest things to do is to smell something and like really understand all of its complexity. Like again, because it's sort of a muscle that we're not used to flexing in our brains. It takes a lot of time to be able to like actually process what we're getting from the、mm-hmm. smells and how to like describe it, how to like differentiate it from other smells, especially something like closely related to other things like a tangerine and a lemon, for example.、Mm. Like you have to sort of learn how to differentiate them in your brains and then articulate it to yourself so that later, when you have the same thought again, you're able to pinpoint which is which. So yeah, a lot of our time was spent smelling in the mornings, and then in the afternoons we would either be in creation workshops where you sort of make your own fragrances, or we would do things like go to a flower farm and smell like real jasmine and tuberose and rose,、um, and sort of have conversations with the farmers who grow those flowers because grass is actually known for being like the number one producer of raw materials for the perfume industry. Oh, really? In the world, yeah, it's unofficially called the capital of perfume because it has such a long history of being like a primary producer for perfume manufacturers and companies, especially like flowers. Grass has a a really unique microclimate that allows for like growing really fickle flowers like tuberose, and we were able to go to one of those farms and smell those things, and it was like the best experience of my life. <laughs> it was probably too short. Too short, yeah. It was just a morning, and we like helped harvest jasmine for that day's production. Basically, they harvest these like big baskets of jasmine petals, and then they ship it off to a nearby perfume manufacturer, which is gonna like distill it and create the oil out of it. Wow. Yeah. So besides, of course, million things you've learned about perfume. Yeah. Did you learn something about yourself that you didn't know about? Yeah. So I, <laughs> I actually went there with one goal. And the goal was to figure out whether I was able to create something that I had in my mind. So before that, I was. So you like, said a challenge for yourself. Yeah, I wanted to confirm or deny the ability to make something through my imagination. 
And I got confirmation that I was able to do it. Like I wouldn't say all of the things that I made were 100% what I wanted, but a few of them were exactly what I wanted. Within that short of amount of time is pretty exciting for me. Like just the ability to be satisfied with something that I made in two weeks. Yeah. And it gives me the confidence and hope that if I spent more time practicing the skill, I would be able to have like a 100% success rate maybe, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. So do you have a, a plan or a vision or something you hope to happen in the next few years that either with your writing, with invisible stories, uh, with perfume, particularly fragrance, or combine all of them? So do you have any like dream or anything that down the road you hope to see it to flourish and happen? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about is writing a book. Ooh. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, that's so, yeah, that's it's true. A, it's a tiny seed in the back of my brain right now, but mm-hmm. I've been thinking that like, there's so much I want to say about perfume, and there's so much that needs to be said still, that it would be a really good challenge and practice to put together a bunch of essays and writing about perfume into a book. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah, so that's something that I'm thinking about, and then obviously, I would like to open a store of some kind and really use it as a space to help facilitate creating relationships between people and perfumes using it either as like a workshop to do like sessions where people can smell different things and really connect with their ability to smell and like tap into this like bottomless reservoir of olfactive memories that Mm -hmm. all of us have doing aromatherapy classes. What is that? um, Aromatherapy is this practice in which like we believe that certain ingredients have certain effects on your psyche and your health and your well-being. So like bergamot, jasmine, these things like citruses are all like antidepressants. Mm. Lavender, sage, those things are like calming and help you sleep. Like they have certain attributes and qualities to them that are expressed when you wear them or smell them. Yeah. It's not a field that I know a lot about, but I know there's lots of people who know a lot about it. So I would love to partner with people and use this ever evolving space that I have in my mind as a place to do that and really create a community around like a passion for smells, mm. which I think is underserved. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Especially, I think, in Toronto and in Canada, there are a lot of um, talents here, mm-hmm. but it's just not, as we talked about earlier, there's no like a framework or infrastructure to kind of bring all this community out together mm-hmm. to celebrate this thing. Yeah, I think Canada, compared to other countries, is really like the, the passion for scent is kind of dormant here. Whereas like if you go to Italy or France, like perfume is everywhere because mm-hmm. it's been in the routines and cultures of people throughout centuries. Like people are anointing themselves with all kinds of luxurious things in France and Italy. And then when you come here, it's like, oh, sometimes I wear an essential oil. <laughs> That's sort of the, the basis of people's interactions with perfume here, which is completely cool and fine. But I think there's a lot of room to explore. Mm-hmm. And people just don't know that much about perfume here. Whereas like in Italy, there were perfumeries all over and I would go in and there'd be like thousands of different lines of perfume. It's like all niche. 
And everyone like wears something like just walking down the street, you can just pick up on like hundreds and hundreds of different perfumes. But here's like a lot of a lot of people don't wear anything. I think it also taps into this idea that like a lot of people are allergic Mm. (laughs) to perfume and the culture that we have is that we're supposed to, I mean, rightfully so, be respectful of other people's space and like not bombard them with our smells. But I think it's different in European countries. Yeah. Do you think that would be the challenge for the dream you shared earlier, particularly in Toronto, if they make it happen here? Uh, I think it's challenge, but it's also a growing interest, I feel. Like just amongst my friends and people sort of making perfume that I talk to, there's like an, a growing passion and interest in, you know, wearing things that you wouldn't find in a department store or like wearing things not everyone else wears mm-hmm. or like the smaller indie creations that are like little roller balls of natural oils that you can wear that like stay close to the skin so you're not projecting as far and therefore being as like violating of other people's olfactory space. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of like interim measures that you can take in a culture like ours where like, yeah, strong perfume isn't necessarily something that's like celebrated and embraced. But I think there's a lot of other more subtle ways of playing up scent in your daily life too. So are you ready for the rapid fire? Yeah. It's always the fun part. Okay. So something weird about you that not that many people know of. I'm extremely ticklish. Are you? Yeah. When I get tickled, I have this, like, for some reason, my only reaction is to laugh, which makes it sound like I'm enjoying it. But really, I'm laughing and inside I'm crying, thinking I'm going to kill you whenever you stop tickling me. My boyfriend loves this. He always, like, tickles me until I'm, like, weeping. And inside, I'm like, I'm going to murder you. I'm going to end your life. And he enjoys that. And he's like, but how can I stop when you're laughing and smiling? It looks so nice. <laughs> That's cute. Um, do you have a ultimate favorite film? In the Mood for Love. Oh, <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. Um, a love letter to your future self. A love letter to my future self. <laughs> See, this is what I mean by it's not a quick answer, even if it's a quick question. Bring your poetry skill. <laughs> Uh, I think I would say, don't worry about what you don't have. No. Can you ask the question again? (laughs) The love letter to a future self. Yeah, don't have regrets because at the time it was exactly what you wanted. So now it's a package. Please use three or less words to describe the following. Love. (laughs) Sorry, say that again. (laughs) Hello? listening i am i just got caught up in thinking about regrets <laughs> i'm just oh, regrets. <laughs> now i'm curious okay <clears throat> so three or less words to describe the following things love best friends aging looking forward scent emotion and memory style Identity, not necessarily. Invisible stories. Three words. Three or three or less. Could be, <laughs> could be one or two. Invisible stories. Uh, sense to remember. For your next life, if you could choose to be born in any city in the world, which city would you pick? Tokyo. Ooh, didn't expect that. 
<laughs> Why? I don't know. I loved it there. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, what is the biggest lesson you've learned recently? That it's okay not to have figured anything out. And this is a scenario that robots or aliens are going to take over the world. Mm -hmm. And they give mercy to every human being on this planet that we can remember, keep three memories of our own. And after the brainwash process, everything will be gone mm -hmm. except these three memories. Yeah. So please share these three memories that you like to keep before the brainwash process. <laughs> well, not to be <laughs> extremely stereotypical of myself, but the scent of jasmine, the scent of uh, the sidewalk after it's rained, and the feeling of embracing my boyfriend. Hmm. It's so interesting. You didn't share like a particularly like event or like you actually share like feelings and scents and stuff. It's a cheat because with them are a whole bunch of other I know. <laughs> feelings and events. But, yeah. And the robots will be like, not disqualified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's the same scenario, but now will be three truths or wisdom you can keep with yourself to guide you through mm -hmm. after you wake up from this brainwash process. Or you can share that with others. Three, like, advice? Yeah. Or wisdoms, or, like, something you learn along the years. Yeah. Um, this is hard. Is it? I wish you sent me these questions beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> then that wouldn't be rapid fire. <laughs> well, you're asking very deep questions. How is this supposed to be rapid fire? <laughs> uh, three things that I've learned. Okay, the first one would be... If you respect yourself, everything else will be fine. The second thing, which I spoke to earlier, is that it's okay to not know everything you need to know right away. The third thing would be that you have to treat yourself with the same decency and love that you would treat anyone else you cared about. Last question. Okay. What are you currently seeking? I am seeking a sense of home. Oh, wow. And your sisters might move to Toronto. Mm -hmm. That might help. I mean, I think I'm in the process of finding it, but my entire life has been around finding a sense of home, I think. Just because I moved around so much as a child, that it's a feeling that I'm always in pursuit of. So where were you born? In Actually, China. In China. Wait, where? Hunan. Oh, really? Yeah. And then where did you move after? Mississippi. And then? Quebec City. And then Toronto. Montreal. And then Toronto. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so this wrap up my conversation feel. with Tracy and our last episode of 2018. A kind reminder, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast and leave us a review while you're there. And follow along on Instagram, Pinterest, and Spotify on Dear Seekers. While we are away, you can revisit some of your favorite episodes. If you are new here, we have 22 other episodes waiting for you. And each woman we feature has kind enough to share a playlist with you on Spotify. So head to Dear Seekers to enjoy them while you are not in the mood for any holiday soundtracks. And last but not the least, Sign up to our newsletter on DearSeekers.com so you will know when our first episode drops in 2019. 
Okay, so see you next year. Until then, happy seeking. <laughs>